Chapter Five, Part Two of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vicki Rands. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Five: A Crisis in My Mental History, Part Two. These were the thoughts which mingled with the dry, heavy dejection of the melancholy winter of 1826 to 1827. During this time I was not incapable of my usual occupations. I went on with them mechanically, by the mere force of habit. I had been so drilled in a certain sort of mental exercise that I could still carry it on when all the spirit had gone out of it. I even composed and spoke several speeches at the debating society, how, or with what degree of success, I know not. Of four years' continual speaking at that society, this is the only year of which I remember next to nothing. Two lines of Coleridge, in whom alone of all writers I have found a true description of what I felt, were often in my thoughts, not at this time, for I had never read them, but in a later period of the same mental malady. Work without hope draws nectar in a sieve, and hope without an object cannot live. In all probability my case was by no means so peculiar as I fancied it, and I doubt not that many others have passed through a similar state, but the idiosyncrasies of my education had given to the general phenomenon a special character which made it seem the natural effect of causes that it was hardly possible for time to remove i frequently asked myself if i could or if i was bound to go on living when life must be passed in this manner i generally answered to myself that i did not think i could possibly bear it beyond a year when however not more than half that duration of time had elapsed a small ray of light broke in upon my gloom. I was reading accidentally Marmontel's memoirs, and came to the passage which relates his father's death, the distressed position of the family, and the sudden inspiration by which he, then a mere boy, felt, and made them feel that he would be everything to them, would supply the place of all that they had lost. A vivid conception of the scene and its feelings came over me, and I was moved to tears. From this moment my burden grew lighter. The oppression of the thought that all feeling was dead within me was gone. I was no longer hopeless. I was not a stock or a stone. I had still, it seemed, some of the material out of which all worth of character and all capacity for happiness are made. Relieved from my ever-present sense of irremediable wretchedness, I gradually found that the ordinary incidents of life could again give me some pleasure, that I could again find enjoyment, not intense, but sufficient for cheerfulness in sunshine and sky, in books, in conversation, in public affairs, and that there was once more excitement, though a moderate kind in exerting myself for my opinions, and for the public good. Thus the cloud gradually drew off, and I again enjoyed life, and though I had several relapses, some of which lasted many months, I never again was as miserable as I had been. The experiences of this period had two very marked effects on my opinions and character. In the first place, they led me to adopt a theory of life very unlike that on which I had before I acted, and having much in common with what at the time I certainly had never heard of, the anti-self-consciousness theory of Carlyle, I never indeed wavered in the conviction that happiness is the test of all rules of conduct and the end of life. But I now thought that this end was only to be obtained by not making it the direct end. Those only are happy, I thought, who have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness, on the happiness of others, 
on the improvement of mankind even on some art or pursuit followed not as a means but as itself an ideal end aiming thus at something else they find happiness by the way the enjoyments of life such was now my theory are sufficient to make it a pleasant thing when they are taken en passant without being made a principal object once make them so and they are immediately felt to be insufficient they will not bear a scrutinizing examination ask yourself whether you are happy and you cease to be so the only chance is to treat not happiness but some end external to it as the purpose of life let your self-consciousness your scrutiny your self-interrogation exhaust themselves on that and if otherwise fortunately circumstanced you will inhale happiness with the air you breathe without dwelling on it or thinking about it without either forestalling it in imagination or putting it to flight by fatal questioning this theory now became the basis of my philosophy of life and i still hold to it as the best theory for all those who have but a moderate degree of sensibility and of capacity for enjoyment that is for the great majority of mankind the other important change which my opinions at this time underwent was that i for the first time gave its proper place among the prime necessities of human well-being to the internal culture of the individual i ceased to attach almost exclusive importance to the ordering of outward circumstances and the training of the human being for speculation and for action i had now learned by experience that the passing susceptibilities needed to be cultivated as well as the active capacities and required to be nourished and enriched as well as guided i did not for an instant lose sight of or undervalue that part of the truth which i had seen before i never turned recreant to intellectual culture or ceased to consider the power and practice of analysis as an essential condition both of individual and of social improvement but i thought that it had consequences which required to be corrected by joining other kinds of cultivation with it the maintenance of a due balance among the faculties now seemed to be of primary importance the cultivation of the feelings became one of the cardinal points in my ethical and philosophical creed and my thoughts and inclinations turned in an increasing degree towards whatever seemed capable of being instrumental to that object i now began to find meaning in the things which i had read or heard about the importance of poetry and art as instruments of human culture but it was some time longer before i began to know this by personal experience the only one of the imaginative arts in which i had from childhood taken great pleasure was music the best effect of which and in this it surpasses perhaps every other art consists in exciting enthusiasm in winding up to a high pitch those feelings of an elevated kind which are already in the character but to which this excitement gives a glow and fervor which though transitory at its utmost height is precious for sustaining them at other times this effect of music i had often experienced but like all my pleasurable susceptibilities it was suspected during the gloomy period i had sought relief again and again from this quarter but found none after the tide had turned and i was in process of recovery i had been helped forward by music but in a much less elevated manner i at this time first became acquainted with weber's oberon and the extreme pleasure which i drew from its delicious melodies did me good by showing me a source of pleasure to which i was as susceptible as ever the good however was much impaired by the thought that the pleasure of music as is quite true of such pleasure as this was that of mere tune 
fades with familiarity and requires either to be revived by intermittence or fed by continual novelty and it is very characteristic both of my then state and of the general tone of my mind at this period of my life that i was seriously tormented by the thought of the exhaustibility of musical combinations the octave consists only of five tones and two semitones which can be put together in only a limited number of ways of which but a small portion are beautiful most of these it seemed to me must have been already discovered and there could not be room for a long succession of mozarts and webbers to strike out as these had done entirely new and surpassingly rich veins of musical beauty this source of anxiety may perhaps be thought to resemble that of the philosophers of laputa who feared lest the sun should be burnt out it was however connected with the best feature in my character and the only good point to be found in my very unromantic and in no way honourable distress for though my dejection honestly looked at could not be called other than egotistical produced by the ruin as i thought of my fabric of happiness yet the destiny of mankind in general was ever in my thoughts and could not be separated from my own i felt that the flaw in my life must be a flaw in life itself that the question was whether if the reformers of society and government could succeed in their objects and every person in the community were free and in a state of physical comfort the pleasures of life being no longer kept up by struggle and privation would cease to be pleasures and i felt that unless i could see my way to some better hope than this for human happiness in general my dejection must continue but that if i could see such an outlet i should then look on the world with pleasure content as far as i was myself concerned with any fair share of the general lot this state of my thoughts and feelings made the fact of my reading wordsworth for the first time in the autumn of eighteen twenty eight an important event of my life i took up this collection of his poems from curiosity with no expectation of mental relief from it though i had before resorted to poetry with that hope in the worst period of my depression i had read through the whole of byron then new to me to try whether a poet whose particular department was supposed to be that of the intenser feelings could rouse any feeling in me as might be expected i got no good from this reading but the reverse the poet's state of mind was too like my own his was the lament of a man who had worn out all pleasures and who seemed to think that life to all who possess the good things of it must necessarily be the vapid uninteresting thing which i found it his herald and manfred had the same burden on them which i had and i was not in a frame of mind to desire any comfort from the vehement sensual passion of his giars or the sullenness of his laris but while byron was exactly what did not suit my condition wordsworth was exactly what did i had looked into the excursion two or three years before and found little in it and i should probably have found as little had i read it at this time but the miscellaneous poems in the two-volume edition of eighteen fifteen to which little of value was added in the latter part of the author's life proved to be the precise thing for my mental wants at that particular juncture in the first place these poems addressed themselves powerfully to one of the strongest of my pleasurable susceptibilities the love of rural objects and natural scenery to which i had been indebted not only for much of 
the pleasure of my life but quite recently for relief from one of my longest relapses into depression in this power of rural beauty over me there was a foundation laid for taking pleasure in wordsworth's poetry the more so as his scenery lies mostly along mountains which owing to my early perennian excursion were my ideal of natural beauty but wordsworth would never have had any great effect on me if he had merely placed before me beautiful pictures of natural scenery scott does this still better than wordsworth and a very second-rate landscape does it more effectually than any poet what made wordsworth's poems a medicine for my state of mind was that they expressed not mere outward beauty but states of feeling and of thought colored by feeling under the excitement of beauty they seemed to be the very culture of the feelings which i was in quest of in them i seemed to draw from a source of inward joy a sympathetic and imaginative pleasure which could be shared in by all human beings which had no connection with struggle or imperfection but would be made richer by every improvement in the physical or social condition of mankind from them i seemed to learn what would be the perennial sources of happiness when all the greater evils of life shall have been removed and i felt myself at once better and happier as i came under their influence there has certainly been even in our own age greater poets than wordsworth but poetry of deeper and loftier feeling could not have done for me at the time what his did i needed to be made to feel that there was real permanent happiness in tranquil contemplation wordsworth taught me this not only without turning away from but with a greatly increased interest in the common feelings and common destiny of human beings and the delight which these poems gave me proved that with culture of this sort there was nothing to dread from the most confirmed habit of analysis at the conclusion of the poems came the famous ode falsely called platonic intimations of immortality in which along with more than his usual sweetness of melody and rhythm and along with the two passages of grand imagery but bad philosophy so often quoted i found that he too had had similar experience to mine that he also had felt that the first freshness of youthful enjoyment of life was not lasting but that he had sought for compensation and found it in the way in which he was now teaching me to find it the result was that i gradually but completely emerged from my habitual depression and was never again subject to it i long continued to value wordsworth less according to his intrinsic merits than by the measure of what he had done for me compared with the greatest poets he may be said to be the poet of unpoetical natures possessed of quiet and contemplative tastes but unpoetical natures are precisely those which require poetic cultivation this cultivation wordsworth is much more fitted to give than poets who are intrinsically far more poets than he it so fell out that the merits of wordsworth were the occasion of my first public decoration of my new way of thinking and the separation from those of my habitual companions who had not undergone a similar change the person with whom at the time i was most in the habit of comparing notes on such subjects was roebuck and i induced him to read wordsworth in whom he also at first seemed to find much to admire but i like most wordsworthians threw myself into strong antagonism to byron both as a poet and as to his influence on the character roebuck all whose instincts were those of action and struggle 
had on the contrary a strong relish and great admiration of byron whose writings he regarded as the poetry of human life while wordsworth's according to him was that of flowers and butterflies we agreed to have the fight at our debating society where we accordingly discussed for two evenings the comparative merits of byron and wordsworth propounding and illustrating by long recitations our respective theories of poetry sterling also in a brilliant speech putting forward his particular theory this was the first debate on any weighty subject in which roebuck and i had been on opposite sides the schism between us widened from this time more and more though we continued for some years longer to be companions in the beginning our chief divergence related to the cultivation of the feelings roebuck was in many respects very different from the vulgar notion of a benthamite or utilitarian he was a lover of poetry and of most of the fine arts he took great pleasure in music in dramatic performances especially in painting and himself drew and designed landscapes with great facility and beauty but he could never be made to see that these things have any value as aids in the formation of character personally instead of being as benthamites are supposed to be void of feeling he had very quick and strong sensibilities but like most englishmen who have feelings he found his feelings stand very much in his way he was much more susceptible to the painful sympathies than to the pleasurable and looking for his happiness elsewhere he wished that his feelings should be deadened rather than quickened and in truth the english character and english social circumstances make it so seldom possible to derive happiness from the exercise of the sympathies that it is not wonderful if they count for little in an englishman's scheme of life in most other countries the paramount importance of the sympathies as a constituent of individual happiness is an axiom taken for granted rather than needing any formal statement but most english thinkers always seem to regard them as necessary evils required for keeping men's actions benevolent and compassionate roebuck was or appeared to be this kind of englishman he was little good in any cultivation of the feelings and none at all in cultivating them through the imagination which he thought was only cultivating illusions it was in vain i urged on him that the imaginative emotion which an idea when vividly conceived excites in us is not an illusion but a fact as real as any of the other qualities of objects and far from implying anything erroneous and delusive in our mental apprehension of the object is quite consistent with the most accurate knowledge and most perfect practical recognition of all its physical and intellectual laws and relations the intensest feeling of the beauty of a cloud lighted by the setting sun is no hindrance to my knowing that the cloud is vapor of water subject to all the laws of vapors in a state of suspension and i am just as likely to allow for and act on these physical laws whenever there is occasion to do so as if i had been incapable of perceiving any distinction between beauty and ugliness while my intimacy with roebuck diminished i fell more and more into friendly intercourse with our coleridgian adversaries in the society frederick maurice and john sterling both subsequently so well known the former by his writings the latter through the biographies by hare and carlyle of these two friends maurice was the thinker sterling the orator an impassioned expositor of thoughts which at this period were almost entirely formed for him by maurice with maurice i had for some time been acquainted through eaton took who had known him at cambridge and although my discussions with him were almost always disputes i had carried away from them 
much that helped to build up my new fabric of thought in the same way as i was deriving much from coleridge and from the writings of goethe and other german authors which i read during these years i have so deep respect for maurice's character and purposes as well as for his great mental gifts that it is with some unwillingness i say anything which may seem to place him on a less high eminence than i would gladly be able to accord to him but i have always thought that there was more intellectual power wasted in maurice than in any other of my contemporaries few of them certainly have had so much to waste great powers of generalization rare ingenuity and subtlety and a wide perception of important and unobvious truths served him not for putting something better into the place of the worthless heap of received opinions on the great subjects of thought but for proving to his own mind that the church of england had known everything from the first and that all the truths on the grounds of which the church and orthodoxy have been attacked many of which he saw as clearly as any one are not only consistent with the thirty-nine articles but are better understood and expressed in those articles than by any one who rejects them i have never been able to find any other explanation of this than by attributing it to that timidity of conscience combined with original sensitiveness of temperament which has so often driven highly gifted men into romanism from the need of a firmer support than they can find in the independent conclusions of their own judgment any more vulgar kind of timidity no one who knew maurice would ever think of imputing to him even if he had not given public proof of his freedom from it by his ultimate collision with some of the opinions commonly regarded as orthodox and by his noble origination of the christian socialist movement the nearest parallel to him in a moral point of view is coleridge to whom in merely intellectual power apart from poetical genius i think him decidedly superior at this time however he might be described as a disciple of coleridge and sterling as a disciple of coleridge and of him the modifications which were taking place in my old opinions gave me some points of contact with them and both maurice and sterling were of considerable use to my development with sterling i soon became very intimate and was more attached to him than i have ever been to any other man he was indeed one of the most lovable of men his frank cordial affectionate and expansive character a love of truth alike conspicuous in the highest things and the humblest a generous and ardent nature which threw itself with impetuosity into the opinions it adopted but was as eager to do justice to the doctrines and the men it was supposed to as to make war on what it thought their errors and an equal devotion to the two cardinal points of liberty and duty formed a combination of qualities as attractive to me as to all others who knew him as well as i did with his open mind and heart he found no difficulty in joining hands with me across the gulf which as yet divided our opinions he told me how he and others had looked upon me from hearsay information as a made or manufactured man having had a certain impress of opinion stamped on me which i could only reproduce and what a change took place in his feelings when he found in the discussion on wordsworth and byron that wordsworth and all which that name implies belonged to me as much as to him and his friends 
the failure of his health soon scattered all his plans of life and compelled him to live at a distance from london so that after the first year or two of our acquaintance we only saw each other at distant intervals but as he said himself in one of his letters to carlyle when we did meet it was like brothers though he was never in the full sense of the word a profound thinker his openness of mind and the moral courage in which he greatly surpassed maurice made him outgrow the dominion which maurice and coleridge had once exercised over his intellect though he retained to the last a great but discriminating admiration of both and towards maurice a warm affection except in that short and transitory phasis of his life during which he made the mistake of becoming a clergyman his mind was ever progressive and the advance he always seemed to have made when i saw him after an interval made me apply to him what goethe said of schiller er hat ein vertlich fortschreitung he and i started from intellectual points almost as wide apart as the poles but the distance between us was always diminishing if i made steps towards some of his opinions he during his short life was constantly approximating more and more to several of mine and if he had lived and had health and vigor to prosecute his ever assiduous self-culture there is no knowing how much further this spontaneous assimilation might have proceeded after eighteen twenty nine i withdrew from attendance on the debating society i had had enough speech-making and was glad to carry on my private studies and meditations without any immediate call for outward assertion of their results i found the fabric of my old and taught opinions giving way in many fresh places and i never allowed it to fall to pieces but was incessantly occupied in wearing it anew i never in the course of my transition was content to remain for ever so short a time confused and unsettled when i had taken in any new idea i could not rest till i had adjusted its relation to my old opinions and ascertained exactly how far its effect ought to extend in modifying or superseding them the conflicts which i had so often had to sustain in defending the theory of government laid down in bentham's and my father's writings and the acquaintance i had obtained with other schools of political thinking made me aware of many things which that doctrine professing to be a theory of government in general ought to have made room for and did not but these things as yet remained with me rather as corrections to be made in applying the theory to practices than as to defects in the theory i felt that politics could not be a science of specific experience and that the accusations against the benthamic theory of being a theory of proceeding a priori by way of general reasoning instead of baconian experiment showed complete ignorance of bacon's principles and of the necessary conditions of experimental investigation at this juncture appeared in the edinburgh review macaulay's famous attack on my father's essay on government this gave me much to think about i saw that macaulay's conception of the logic of politics was erroneous that he stood up for the empirical mode of treating political phenomena against the philosophical that even in physical science his notions of philosophizing might have recognized kepler but who would have excluded newton and laplace but i could not help feeling that though the tone was unbecoming an error for which the writer at a later period made the most ample and honorable amends there was truth in several of his strictures on my father's treatment of the subject that my father's premises 
were really too narrow and included but a small number of the general truths on which in politics the important consequences depend identity of interest between the governing body and the community at large is not in any practical sense which can be attached to it the only thing on which good government depends neither can this identity of interest be secured by the mere conditions of election I was not at all satisfied with the mode in which my father met the criticisms of Macaulay. He did not, as I thought he ought to have done, justify himself by saying, I was not writing a scientific treaty on politics, I was writing an argument for parliamentary reform. He treated Macaulay's argument as simply irrational, an attack upon the reasoning facility, an example of the saying of Hobbes, that when reason is against a man, a man will be against reason. This made me think that there was really something more fundamentally erroneous in my father's conception of philosophical method, as applicable to politics, than I had hitherto supposed there was. But I did not at first see clearly what the error might be. At last it flashed upon me all at once in the course of other studies. In the early part of 1830, I had begun to put on paper the ideas of logic, chiefly on the distinctions among terms, and the import of propositions, which had been suggested and in part worked out in the morning conversations already spoken of. Having secured these thoughts from being lost, I pushed on into the other parts of the subject, to try whether I could do anything further towards clearing up the theory of logic generally. I grappled at once with the problem of induction, postponing that of reasoning, on the ground that it is necessary to obtain premises before we can reason from them. Now, induction is mainly a process for finding the causes of effects, and in attempting to fathom the mode of tracing causes and effects in physical science. I soon saw that in the more perfect of the sciences we ascend, by generalization from particulars, to the tendencies of causes considered singly, and then reason downward from those separate tendencies to the effect of the same causes when combined. I then asked myself, what is the ultimate analysis of this deductive process, the common theory of the syllogism, evidently throwing no light upon it, my practice, learnt from Hobbes and my father, being to study abstract principles by means of the best concrete instances I could find, the composition of forces in dynamics occurred to me as the most complete example of the logical process I was investigating. On examining accordingly what the mind does when it applies the principle of the composition of forces, I found that it performs a simple act of addition. It adds the separate effect of the one force to the separate effect of the other and puts down the sum of these separate effects as the joint effect. But is this a legitimate process? In dynamics, and in all the mathematical branches of physics, it is. But in some other cases, as in chemistry, it is not. And I then recollected that something not unlike this was pointed out as one of the distinctions between chemical and mechanical phenomena. In the introduction to that favorite of my boyhood, Thompson's system of chemistry, this distinction at once made my mind clear as to what was perplexing me in respect to the philosophy of politics. I now saw that a science is either deductive or experimental, according as, in the province it deals with, the effects of causes when conjoined are or are not the sums of the effects which the same causes produce when separate. It followed 
that politics must be a deductive science. It thus appeared that both Macaulay and my father were wrong, the one in assimilating the method of philosophizing in politics to the purely experimental method of chemistry, while the other, though right in adopting a deductive method, had made a wrong selection of one, having taken as the type of deduction not the appropriate process that of the deductive branches of natural philosophy, but the inappropriate one of pure geometry, which not being a science of causation at all, does not require or admit of any summing up of effects. A foundation was thus laid in my thoughts for the principal chapters of what I afterwards published on the logic of the moral sciences, and my new position in respect to my old political creed now became perfectly definite. If I am asked what system of political philosophy I substituted for that which, as a philosophy, I had abandoned, I answer, no system, only a conviction that the true system was something much more complex and many-sided than I had previously had any idea of, and that its office was to supply not a set of model institutions, but principles from which the institutions suitable to any given circumstances might be deduced. The influences of European, that is to say, continental, thought, and especially those of the reaction of the nineteenth century against the eighteenth, were now streaming in upon me. They came from various quarters, from the writings of Coleridge, which I had begun to read with interest, even before the change in my opinions, from the Coleridgeans, with whom I was in personal intercourse, from what I had read of Goethe, from Carlyle's early articles in the Edinburgh and foreign reviews, though for a long time I saw nothing in these, as my father saw nothing in them to the last, but insane rhapsody. From these sources and from the acquaintance I kept up with the French literature of the time, I derived, among other ideas, which the general turning upside down of the opinions of European thinkers had brought uppermost, these in particular, that the human mind has a certain order of possible progress, in which some things must precede others, an order which governments and public instructors can modify to some but not to an unlimited extent, that all questions of political institutions are relative, not absolute, and that different stages of human progress not only will have, but ought to have different institutions, that government is always either in the hands or passing into the hands of whatever is the strongest power in society and that what this power is does not depend on institutions, but institutions on it, that any general theory or philosophy of politics supposes a previous theory of human progress, and that this is the same thing with the philosophy of history. These opinions, true in the main, were held in an exaggerated and violent manner by the thinkers with whom I was now most accustomed to compare notes, and who, as usual, with a reaction, ignored that half of the truth which the thinkers of the eighteenth century saw. But though, at one period of my progress, I for some time undervalued that great century, I never joined in the reaction against it, but kept as firm hold of one side of the truth as I took of the other. The fight between the nineteenth century and the eighteenth century always reminded me of the battle about the shield, one side of which was white and the other black. 
i marvelled at the blind rage with which the combatants rushed against one another i applied to them and to coleridge himself many of coleridge's sayings about half-truths and ghost device many sightedness was one which i would most willingly at this period have taken for mine the writers by whom more than by any others a new mode of political thinking was brought home to me were those of the saint simeon school in france in eighteen twenty nine and eighteen thirty i became acquainted with some of their writings they were then only in the earlier stages of their speculations they had not yet dressed out their philosophy as a religion nor had they organized their scheme of socialism they were just beginning to question the principle of hereditary property i was by no means prepared to go with them even this length but i was greatly struck with the connected view which they for the first time presented to me of the natural order of human progress and especially with their division of all history into organic periods and critical periods during the organic periods they said mankind except with firm conviction some positive creed claiming jurisdiction over all their actions and containing more or less of truth and adaptation to the needs of humanity under its influence they make all the progress compatible with the creed and finally outgrow it when a period follows of criticism and negation in which mankind lose their old convictions without acquiring any new ones of a general or authoritative character except the conviction that the old are false the period of greek and roman polytheism so long as really believed in by instructed greeks and romans was an organic period succeeded by the critical or sceptical period of the greek philosophers another organic period came in with christianity the corresponding critical period began with the reformation has lasted ever since still lasts and cannot altogether cease until a new organic period has been inaugurated by the triumph of a yet more advanced creed these ideas i knew were not peculiar to the saint simonians on the contrary they were the general property of europe or at least of germany and france but they had never to my knowledge been so completely systemized as by these writers nor the distinguishing characteristics of a critical period so powerfully set forth for i was not then acquainted with fitch's lecture on the characteristics of the present age in carlyle indeed i found bitter denunciations of an age of unbelief and of the present age as such which i like most people at the time supposed to be passionate protests in favor of the old modes of belief but all that was true in these denunciations i thought that i found more calmly and philosophically stated by the saint simonians among their publications too there was one which seemed to me far superior to the rest in which the general idea was matured into something much more definite and instructive this was an early work of august comte who then called himself and even announced himself in the title page as a pupil of saint simon in this tract monsieur comte first put forth a doctrine which he afterwards so copiously illustrated of the natural succession of three stages in every department of human knowledge first the theological next the metaphysical and lastly the positive stage and contended 
that social science must be subject to the same law that the feudal and catholic system faces of the theological state of the social science protestantism the commencement and the doctrines of the french revolution the consummation of the metaphysical and that its positive state was yet to come this doctrine harmonized well with my existing notions to which it seemed to give a scientific shape i already regarded the methods of physical science as the proper models for political but the chief benefit which i derived at this time from the trains of thought suggested by the saint simeons and by comte was that i obtained a clearer conception than ever before of the peculiarities of an era of transition in opinion and ceased to mistake the moral and intellectual characteristics of such an era for the normal attributes of humanity i looked forward through the present age of loud disputes but generally weak convictions to a future which shall unite the best qualities of the critical with the best qualities of the organic periods unchecked liberty of thought unbounded freedom of individual action in all modes not hurtful to others but also convictions as to what is right and wrong useful and pernicious deeply engraved on the feelings by early education and general unanimity of sentiment and so firmly grounded in reason and in the true exigencies of life that they shall not like all former and present creeds religious ethical and political require to be periodically thrown off and replaced by others End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Vicki Rands